you know, you've got your design engineers that are in there, but you're also, ideally, you're co-creating with your end users. This is the Brilliance Leadership Learning Podcast, sharing thought-provoking content and discussions to enhance your leadership development journey. Be sure to subscribe to get notified of new episodes. Here is your host, Chantal Nash, Digital Learning and Engagement Manager from the team at Crotonville, GE's Global Learning Institute. We're here on another episode of the Brilliance Leadership Learning Podcast, and I've got Michael Sander, John Sassatelli, and Gregory Thomas. On today's episode, we're going to be talking all about design thinking, specific to some very interesting projects that have been run here at GE. So I just want to get right into it, let these folks introduce themselves, and talk more about how this got started. So, uh, John, I'll let you take it away first. All right. Thanks, Chantel. Um uh, so, yeah, I'm the consulting engineer for repair development at GE Power. Uh, I've been with the company about 21 years. In that whole time, I've been working in services, and I'm really passionate about design thinking and how it helps us create better products and services for our clients. So, you know, in repair engineering, we don't make the hardware. It's our job to help our customers with tools and processes so that they can be the most profitable that they can with the equipment that they purchased from GE. Uh, great. Thank you, John. And uh, let's go to Michael now. Sure. Uh, I'm not sure I can follow John's uh, description of his role quite so well, but um, I am the shop operations leader for the Repair Development Center. Um, I've been with Wynn for about five years now. Um, and my role uh, is more or less to help facilitate some of the design thinking and do a lot of the prototyping and um, development within our group. That's great. And Gregory? So I'm the manager for the repair technology team uh, in Onshore Wind. And, you know, my team pretty much, as John stated, uh, very similar to the power side, uh, except we're kind of responsible for uh, the installation and the service side. So all the processes, methods, and tooling that go into the installation and servicing of wind turbines. So tell us a little bit, first and foremost, I mean, design thinking is kind of popular <laughs> right now, but if people have not heard of it before, how would you all describe design thinking? Sure, I'll, I'll take a swing at that. Um, design thinking is a process whereby you put your user first. Right. Um, it also goes under the name empathic design, empathetic design, human-centered design. There are some nuances in how different people approach it, uh, but I prefer to take a look at it more holistically. Um, the way we learned it originally was through the design school at Stanford University, and the way it was described to us was that you go through phases in design of empathize, define, ideate, prototype, and test. But what's really more important is the fact that we're going to iterate on this process, both microscopically very quickly, but also kind of uh, macroscopically over the you know lifetime and course of a project or a development cycle. Um, that's kind of the, the five-second description, if you would. Yeah, that's great. Um, and so specifically, tell us a little bit about the design thinking project you all worked on and how that came about. Well, Greg, why don't you start with that? Okay, sure. So the way I got 
you know, introduced to design thinking was actually, I was a field engineer with wind at the time. And I had a lot of tooling, uh, trailer, truck, everything like that. Started searching around for places I could store it and kind of came across the RDC over in Albany where John works. And the thing that struck me with that one was, you know, here I was as a field engineer being handed tools, right? And uh, not a lot of them were designed for the end user, right? Um, sometimes you're looking for, you know, a wrench and you're handed the screwdriver. Uh, and here, you know, when I started hanging out over at the RDC over there, um, get introduced to John and start seeing a lot of these processes that they were working on. And they just kind of clicked for me, right? I mean, putting the end user first. Um, and building that empathy for it. And that was probably the easiest way to get introduced, right, was coming from the field and seeing this and seeing how design engineers are actually thinking that direction um, firsthand as opposed to thinking, you know, what does the tool have to do? Specifically, what are we trying to solve? It's more of what are the needs, uh, who are we doing it for, who's the customer, and making sure you put that stuff forward. Yeah, and, you know, we started doing it in power back in around 2011, mostly as a way to augment a lot of the processes that we were already using to try to make an impact on the business. You know, we'd been using, you know, back back then GE was big with Six Sigma and Lean Six Sigma, and what we were seeing was that there was we were getting diminishing returns from using those sorts of design processes on our problems. Right, we were getting... We'd gone and picked all the low-hanging fruit using those processes, and the other stuff was just out of reach. So we, we took a look around. We did a little bit of benchmarking outside the industry. Uh, at that point in time, Silicon Valley was starting to come out with, you know, really great innovative products all the time. And we looked at what they were doing. You know, we, we benchmarked what Apple was doing. We specifically looked at IDEO, the design consulting firm. Mm -hmm. and you know, we went out to Stanford to go learn about design thinking from their D school. And we took a lot of that back to Albany, but we really made it ours. You know, we didn't just do a direct transplant of what was there, right? In repair engineering, our mission is to identify, develop, industrialize, and globalize the fleet solutions that are going to impact GE and our customers. Um you know, we started looking at the at the bright spots first of what's going to make the best impact for us. We were trying to get beyond just the the incremental changes that we were starting to see the diminishing returns with. Um, and we we looked at design thinking as a way to just kind of upend the status quo that we had of you know very rigorous toll gate driven processes that would lead us down long development cycles to what ultimately was the wrong end. And we really embrace the iterative nature of design that design thinking has. And a lot of the tools around uh, product definition and the prototyping to help us convey our visions for what the products that we were creating could be, that re that's really what kind of helped us break the mold and start creating better products and, and better processes to industrialize. I think that's really what, what Greg was talking about of what he saw. Transitioning from there, right, we started up the, the wind RTCOE. Um, around that same time, I think it was, what, probably 2013, John, when we actually moved in over there. Um, yep. 
And so we set up, we kind of took over part of their outbuilding. It was just a small little garage and warehouse space. And we kind of took that first stab at our shop and our facility, you know, and looked at, hey, what are the functions? What are the things that we really need um, in order to do this process right and design the right thing? And then probably around 2016, um, an opportunity came up at another G location uh, to where we could really expand. So we were able to use that whole iterative process and, you know, the prototyping um, from design thinking, and we looked at it for our design space. You know, where are we going to have people? You know, what functions do we need from the space? You know, what um, tooling do we want? How do we want to organize it? How do we want to do the layout? What's the process flow of the people that are going to work? Where are they going to work? What does every day look like? Um, so we really applied a lot of those design thinking attributes to the facility itself um, and really set that up in a way that I think has, has been pretty beneficial for us. And we've continued to look at it time and time again of, hey, how do we still make the space better? So I had originally been tapped to come up and lend Greg a hand because of my background. I come from a very hands-on background, kind of just a brute force method engineer, see a problem, come up with a quick solution that's um, maybe not as eloquent as some of the, some of the other ones, but um, works well. And so I got loaned out to Greg's team. And when I came up to the facility, uh, it was pretty clear at that time that while Greg had done an outstanding job setting up the new facility, he really needed to focus on um, some of the bigger picture problems, uh, real uh, solutions that needed to be developed for the wind industry. And I needed to, at that point, find a way to unburden him um, from the respect of setting up the shop. So when I got to the shop, uh, we had, you know, some equipment and my first steps were to fully populate the facility with all of the uh, prototyping equipment we might need to start really utilizing the design thinking method. Uh, a lot of that revolves around being able to be, uh, pivot quickly, uh, find your failure points in your early prototypes, move on, iterate, and eventually drive to um, something that works very well. One other thing I would add is that I, what I hope people are taking away from this conversation is that, you know, it's not just one project. This design thinking has really become how we work, right? It's not, it's not an isolated event. I mean, while there are events, you know, we have design workshops and we have specific meetings tailored to parts of the process. Ultimately, everything that's coming out of Greg and Mike's facility is going through this process. It's just how we operate. There's no longer a checklist. There's, there's not a specific measurement system around it. It's just how everybody works. It's part of our culture at this point. Yeah, and that's an important point because I know especially – you know, a lot of companies have their processes and their checkboxes they need to do, but this is a very different approach. Like you've mentioned, iterating, um, failing, all of those kinds of things. Was there anything that stood out in terms of when you all were first implementing this process into your GE ecosystems and um, how that fit into the GE process rubric, if you will? Yeah, so I, I can go back to when we were first out at Stanford and we, we did a, a leadership event out there. We did a week of executive ed with them. 
and it, it totally changed everything for getting people on board with making the change. And, you know, one of the things we looked at at that point is how are we going to industrialize this in our organization the same way we industrialize our tools and processes out in the service centers in the field. And the whole leadership team, nobody really said exactly what it meant, but everybody knew. We said, we're not going to GE this to death. Mm. And, you know, we, we knew that there was real power here and we could use the tools in design thinking to help with our own industrialization. We could prototype the process. We could get that iterative feedback from one project to the next. And, you know, that being able to get meta with it, to, to turn it around on its own head, um, I think has really been one of the ways that, you know, it can affect every way that you think. And it's also going to help you, you know, see lots of different ways that you could put it together into your organization that you might not have originally thought of. I think that's really some of the great power of design thinking in the first place. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So when you were thinking about what goals or what you all were trying to achieve at the end of this, what were some of those things? Well, I mean, going back to the, the original, our metric is financial productivity in our service centers. And, you know, that that's the need, right, is productivity. So anything that's going to help us be more productive, we want to do, right? One of the tenets of design thinking is that you separate your problems from your solutions, right? Mm -hmm. You separate your, you know, your needs and you understand what the needs are. And then you look at the solutions and you understand what the solutions are, right? A quick way to tell needs are verbs and solutions are nouns, right? So, right, when we're looking at our service center's productivity, we can define that in terms of right something that's missing or something that you know our cost position isn't as good as it potentially could be and we separate that from the solutions that we're trying to put in place um, you know and then the same way that you know we didn't go to the moon the first time we launched a rocket um, you know you stage your missions you do a good mission planning and as you use the design thinking tools to define the solutions you can, you know, stage your stage your solutions. You can stage your industrialization, such that you know you eventually hit those big macroscopic goals. And you know, this was just a way to get us beyond the incremental changes that Lean and Six Sigma had given us. And it's been working through to this day. I mean, no matter what kind of a problem we've found um, around productivity, design thinking has always led us to a new solution. Uh, that we usually hadn't thought of in the past. And to talk about some of the uh, customer-centric goals also, I know um, you spoke to me before about the prototype of the... How, the yeah, one of the, newer, one of the newer platforms. The one chassis, the yeah. That one's, Allied, yeah. Yeah, that one's actually from... It's not the offshore one. It's actually the onshore um, one now that we're calling Cypress. Oh, so okay. it's the, the new... Four eight five three megawatt unit that was recently launched, and what that one we did there was we were kind of approached early, which was which was really nice from the design team, and they were looking at you know hey we have to make a new casting we have to make a large you know chassis which 
from, you know, the architecture standpoint, right? You got the tower that sticks all the way up. And then on the top of the tower, it basically looks like a massive propeller with, you know, like a tractor trailer on it, right? So the thing that attaches to the tower is part of that chassis. Um, we call it bed plate. And due to the size of the unit, it was just so massive. They had, a, you know, metal basically everywhere. So how do you reach certain components that typically wouldn't be obstructed? And what we tried to do was, you know, you're working in models, you're working in 3D, you're working remotely. You can see a lot, but you don't get that feel for it. So what we ended up doing uh, was we looked at what are the different ways that we can prototype this and actually make it. You know, how can we see what this looks like in real space and get people in there that have to do this work and get people to have to figure out how we do these repairs and what tooling we have to make to determine where are the right places for interfaces, where are the right places to make cutaways, and where are the right places to make, you know, access points for us. Um, and that was probably the best visualization um, that we were able to do. Um, and I think, Mike, you could probably talk more about, like, the process we used to do that. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, going on what Greg said, we, we knew that we had to create some sort of model. Um, so a, a couple of the engineers, including a, a summer intern of ours, got together. And this is the nice part about design thinking um, for us, like the way that we use it in our group is we, we do it very informally, frequently. Um, and that allows us to move very fast. And we, we all were shooting around ideas. We were quickly able to down select to the ones that we thought were most feasible to do in the amount of time that we had to get it done. And, um, step one was after we determined our, our first idea was the direction we wanted to go. We trialed it at a very inexpensive, uh, small scale level. We essentially figured out that we wanted to make a lattice frame out of wood to replicate this bed plate. So step one was we made it out of paper. And it was, I, I don't remember the scale exactly. Maybe Greg does. It was probably like a 1 24th scale model of the bed plate. And we had tremendous learning from it. And that cost us maybe a couple of hours and maybe $10 worth of paper. The next step was uh, maybe a one-eighth scale model. And that one maybe cost us $100 in materials, and we learned even more. And the final step was our full-scale model, which was a couple hundred dollars in plywood. And what we got out of it was uh, a really pretty close-to-design bed plate that was in full-scale on our shop floor that we could walk on and crawl around and, and get an idea for uh, what it felt like in real space and where our trouble areas were going to be. And we did this long before we would have ever been able to get a real model. We were the first people to see what this thing looked like in real space, not just on a computer screen. And we were able to do it within a couple of weeks. I think from inception to final product was about six weeks and our total investment was less than a thousand dollars. Right. Yeah. So some really impactful things in terms of, you know, productivity for, for you guys, the cost, the time, uh, and being able to make those iterations more quickly than you would have otherwise. That's right. And, you know, back to the original design thinking framework, that iterative step, <clears throat> that iterative step that's not really mentioned explicitly within empathize, define, ideate, prototype, and test is really where the power comes from. 
the way that we use design thinking and repairs is almost like agile for hardware, right? We can't develop and, you know, make the short sprints that you can with software and make lots of changes and test and test them all out. So the fact that we can make lightweight incarnations of our prototypes, you know, beyond just starting out with 3D printers or full scale, you know, lets us feel and interact and get that empathy for the user that has to interact with the design. Or, or even, you know, to take a bit of a stretch, the, the industrial empathy of what is this bed plate going to do with and how is it going to interact with all of the parts that it has to be with? You know, when you see that in full scale, um, it, it, teach, it teaches you so much more than just looking at it in a computer screen and turning it around can do. But it, it lets us get that iterative loop at different resolutions uh, such that, you know, we can get that learning quickly and cheaply in the process and as early on as we can to make a better, more informed design. Yeah, and I'd even take it a, a step further too, John, with like, if we think of the user as the design engineer, right? I mean, there's so many times you you design something for the output, um, but how it's actually manufactured and gaining that empathy, I think is huge. So when you go through the prototyping phase, you know, even if you're just making stuff out of cardboard, paper and wood, you know, that like Mike was talking about, you know, how do you physically make this thing uh, is a huge empathy gathering for design engineers because, you know, it's direct material. How much does it cost you to make this tool? How much does it cost you to make this process, whatever it is? And so the more time you get in that and the more iterative loops you do, the better design tools you can make, right? You can make them a lot cheaper than you would be able to in other processes or other ways without that learning. You know, I'd go back even even one more, right? You know, we talked about how design thinking helped us get faster to making products in the field. Um, you know, when you have that design for manufacturing kind of worked into the process because you've got a team, a true cross-functional team working on solving the problem, um, you know, you've got your design engineers that are in there, but you're also, ideally, you're co-creating with your end users. You know, one of the great things about Mike's shop is that we bring in the field engineers to help us solve the problems together. And if we were to take a page out of the, out of Lean's playbook, right, you never want to have a manufacturing process where you're trying to push things through it, right? You always want the process to be a pull. And when our end users are co-creating with us, they now know what's in the pipeline. They've gotten their ideas incorporated into the product, mm -hmm. and now it becomes a pull. You know, I mean, just, just a quick number. In, in power, before we started using this process at our repair development centers, you know, our typical NPI development cycles were multi-year. You know, they were 18 to 24 months. Right. yeah through good mission planning and, you know, getting this co-creation and making it a pull process, you know, we got down to six to eight months. Yeah. You know, and when you're talking with, with contract costs and that kind of thing, the faster I can industrialize something, the faster I can see the benefits in the field. And that, that's really how this helps us make an impact. Yeah. So, you know, a good example of that with, bringing in field engineers is we actually had a failure that took place out in the field, you know, within a month or two of us moving into this new facility. Uh, it was 
kind of really interesting timing. The place was almost empty. So what the failure was is two of the main bearings on the machine had actually failed. And just for reference, um, when they build these units, that's basically the first thing they do is they install the main shaft that connects from the rotor to the gearbox, and they put the bearings on it, and then they insert that into the bed plate. So that's the very first step in manufacturing. They do a bunch of flips, and then now they build everything else up from there. So there was really no way to do that out in the field, uh, at least no way that existed. And what we were able to do is we kind of convinced the business and trying to use some of this design thinking process where it's, hey, give us six months, you know, ship the thing over here, and we'll get you a working process. So we brought in um, two field engineers. And then we had um, a system engineer, repair engineer. We actually brought in, you know, two other people from um, the FRO organization, so Fleet Reliability Organization. And we just spent probably six straight weeks of just iterating and figuring out how do we physically do this. We had a old broken unit, um, and we just kept practicing on that, what worked, what didn't work. Uh, and we eventually worked our way up to that actual customer's unit and so we did a shop repair, but the way we did it was the way we would have done it out in the field. Um, and the whole time, right, we're working hand-in-hand with the field engineers. We're fabricating tooling, trying it, stuff works, stuff doesn't. Um, and basically, at the end, we were able to go out and prove this process in the field up tower um, to be able to remove out this this main shaft. And from there, all the field engineers, right, I mean, they were – they were continually working on some of this process and asking for more help, right? They wanted to be able to use this. They were, you know, looking at ways how we could make it more efficient. We were, you know, shadow boxing pool boxes, right? I mean, which in wind, you don't typically do as much as you would do in power. Um, but we were physically bringing up toolboxes up into, uh, up into the machine head that, again, you normally don't have enough space, but we completely tore the whole machine head apart. Um, and actually, Mike was a part of that as well with some other pieces. Like we made platforms, we did all sorts of stuff that honestly we probably never would have done if we did it in a conventional um, design path. Yeah, yeah, I know. So those are really great examples. Um, and I kind of want to start moving into then how did you start driving the culture and behavior of implementing design thinking more broadly? I think at least in our shop, it happened very naturally. Um, I think for a lot of the engineers here, we all by nature kind of employ design thinking just in our natural engineering styles because most of us come from hands-on backgrounds. And it was more putting a name to what we had been doing our entire careers than it was changing our culture. And it, it sure, it, uh, it certainly gave us some new guidelines to operate by. But for a lot of us, this idea of, um, you know, essentially brainstorm with your peers, um, prototype, iterate, and work towards the solution, that, that's what we had always done. And, uh, you know, for, so for us to push that or pull that into our culture was, was very natural. Um, and I think that the more people we work with, the more they realize how natural it is to use this type of a system. Whereas for a lot of engineers, at least the ones that work here, some of GE's previous systems maybe didn't feel as natural, like Six Sigma and Lean. I know it, it didn't for me. Um, so 
overall, it felt like a pretty easy transition for us. And it's easy for us to teach because it we're constantly able to demonstrate speed and efficiency and productivity. And it's frequently, it's very fun for engineers. Um, I mean, a lot of engineers just, they love the iterative process and they love the prototype. Yeah, I would, I would add to that as well. You know, part of our initial discussions around implementation of design thinking in the organization <clears throat> to not GE it to death, you know, what we really did was look at who's going to be the biggest beneficiary of this. Which engineer and which project is going to want to pull these techniques, you know, from a trainer and, and make that impact? And, you know, so we found our bright spots. We didn't try to work to the, you know, middle 80% of the distribution. You know, we worked out on the tails. We worked out on the ends with people who were really feeling the pain of our current design processes. I said, here, try this. Here's an alternative. And the process works. And <clears throat> so what we found is that after a few people had had success with the process, Others in the organization that were maybe more resistant to change could look at it and say, gee, I'm not having success with what I'm doing. Maybe if I look over there and they're being successful, I could go try some of that. And design thinking, yes, it's a process, but it's ultimately a bunch of small tools that you can use. And, you know, you probably heard the, the adage that if all you have is hammers, all of your problems look like nails. Um, but there's a lot of different tools that can meet a lot of different objectives. So, you know, by having some people in our organization that were skilled enough to coach this process, we could identify one or two tools and kind of have it be, you know, a, an easy transition. You don't need to throw away what you've done in the past to start using design thinking today. You know, the, uh, the other way that we look at it is because a lot of folks who work in repair engineering tend to be hands-on types, they're naturally drawn to the prototyping. So that's usually where we start. Mm -hmm. that, that's fun. People tend to, they get, they get drawn to that. There's technology around it. But the, the value in having those prototypes to show what their vision of the future is really speeds their projects along. And then, you know, once you've got them into the prototyping part of the process, then you can get them into the empathy gathering steps of the process. And that's where the real value is in, you know, defining your projects and going forward. So prototyping is the hook, but empathy is the value. Yeah, and what what things would you say, I mean, where should people start when, when you talk about gathering empathy? I mean, what does that look like or what has it looked like for you guys? I think you have to see how stuff gets done, right? I mean, at least for in our team, right, for, for wind and repairs. I mean, you have to understand what the technicians are going through. It's it's a different environment than most, you know, conventional power, right? I mean, you're you're out in the middle of nowhere, 300 feet up in the air, if not more, right? Some of these towers are getting up to 160 meters, so it's a completely different environment. And I think it's it's being able to place yourself in that environment and understand, you know, what makes sense there may not make sense in other applications, or what doesn't make sense there may make sense in others. So fully throwing yourself into that process, I think, helps um, seeing how things get done, you know, and I think that goes both ways, too, right? For for us on the design side and the engineering side, 
we have to understand how the field operates um, so we can make a product better for them. And then we also have to understand, you know, what the design engineers are going through that are designing the physical, you know, wind turbine and those components. Because if we don't understand what they're going through, then we're not going to be able to try to influence. We're not going to, you know, be able to make the best tool or the best process for GE overall, right? We have to really try to find that niche and understand all the different areas we're working with the most. It can be as simple as, you know, observing what's going on, you know, going to a field job and witnessing it. Um, but when you take folks that have lived it and, you know, not just gone out and done one job, but like, you know, lived in a service center for a couple of years before they come to design engineering, um, you know, that sort of an assignment can, you know, leave an indelible mark on the designs that that person is going to make because they have that firsthand empathy for the person who's trying to accomplish that end. Sure. Yeah. So you guys have talked about various projects and have touched on how they've started to improve the end result, but is there anything very, any very tangible results or ways that um, going through the design thinking process has, has helped where, where you have really seen, you know, here's, here's the advantage, here's what we got out of doing this. I think engagement is probably the biggest piece, mm. right? I mean, as John was mentioning, you know, let's not GEify it, right? I mean, there's so many times where there's a certain process that you're just, you're just told to follow, right? And you're like, this doesn't really make sense. I don't really care. Like, why should I bother with this piece? So you kind of just go through those motions, right? Um, with this piece, uh, with design thinking, you can really see people have, you know, ownership of it. They're more excited, like Mike was mentioning, right? You got hands-on people that are getting the prototype. Or, you know, you have a design engineer that may not know how their product is going to be used and they're getting feedback from someone that has that experience. They're going to be excited by that. They're going to be engaged by that. And when you can get people that are passionate and are engaged and are willing to put in that effort, you get way better results, right? Um, regardless what it is, that engagement, I think, is, is probably one of the best pieces that I've seen from using this process. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the definition of empathy, right? Is that you can feel what another person is feeling. And when we define the problems in a human-centered way, I don't think there's anybody out there that doesn't want to help another person out. Yeah, and that's a very interesting answer too. I think probably most people haven't thought of the results or the advantages of this process in that way. So I think that's a really key point there. Um, and of course, a lot of the intangible results that both tangible and intangible results that that has. I know uh, a lot of times we like to measure everything, but engagement also has some unmeasurable results that uh, are, are very important as well. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, Greg, you can probably talk about it more because it is your job to, to manage all the projects, but you know, from a technical standpoint, you know, I see the variety of solutions that get generated through design thinking. You end up with, more economical and quality solutions that are coming out of this process. You know, if you look back at what we used to do in the in the early 2000s in repair engineering, we were making great technology, but it wasn't always being implemented in our shops. Uh, you know, we call them monuments. And, you know, I built a couple myself. You know, I spent, you know, years of my time and, lots of company money to 
put things out that made marginal impacts. And nobody wants to work like that. You know, what this lets us do is define our problems such that our solutions are going to be pulled from us and make that impact. And that's, you know, that that's the big difference on the technical side of the quality of solutions that I think we see from using this sort of a process. Yeah, I'd agree. You know, and I mean, the same way that we've, we've mentioned we bring in a lot of field engineers, right? I mean, some of the best ideas and some of the best repairs we have are coming from the field, right? They're coming from the end user. They're the ones that are coming up with the suggestions. And then we're working with them to figure out how do we make that a reality and how do we make that safe and how do we, you know, make sure the design is engineered properly. You know, so a lot of those processes are being pulled from the field and they're constantly asking like, hey, when is this going to be done? How do we finish this? Whereas I look at some of the other processes we might make, right? And when we don't follow it as closely, you know, that's the stuff where you're like, okay, I'm done. Here's your tool. And they're like, I don't want that. You know, mm -hmm. and it's, it's really obvious to see the difference between the two and getting that early engagement from your end user. It, it's huge because it causes that pull. And then that's the piece when people are looking for the stuff your team is making and then your team's able to see what value you're bringing to the company. Again, you're getting more, you're getting more engagement. You're getting more value. You're getting better reputation and you're putting out better products. Yeah, for sure. And is there anything? that you guys have either seen or just could imagine that maybe this process is not appropriate for or may not work well with? Well, I mean, they call it human-centered design for a reason, and it's because that it helps solve the, the fuzzy, harder-to-define human problems mm -hmm. that you're invariably going to go across. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, one of the things we work on a lot we work with a lot of metallurgists uh, doing welding and brazing repairs and power. You know, if, if you've got a metallurgical problem, go get a metallurgical textbook. Mm. But if you have a problem with a braze that works in one place and doesn't work in another, and you haven't found a physical reason for it yet, maybe you have to look at the people that are executing the problem, and then design thinking is a great tool set to help you solve the things that you might find there or to identify the problems at first, and then just go ahead and solve them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. From the leadership perspective, how can anybody, I guess, really encourage um, their colleagues, their peers, anybody that's around them um, to ask the right questions in their work and embrace sort of the experimentation that comes along with design thinking but may not necessarily always be the most comfortable or most intuitive to some folks? I mean, if you're trying to be a leader in this, right, or you're leading the team, I think it starts with how you're going to respond to failure, right? I mean, you know, if someone's going to be experimenting, right, I mean, you're, you're going to miss. You're going to find opportunities where it doesn't go right. So how do you create those as learning moments? How do you still encourage it to where that's not a bad thing, right? How are you creating those soft landing spots for your team to where they're able to go out and look for opportunities to experiment because depending on how you react to failure and depending on how you react to lessons learned, I think is really going to change uh, how your team is going to interact or react to, you know, experimentation. And I think the other piece is we're talking a lot about that, you know, the human centered design, right? And we're talking about empathy. So 
a big piece of that is you have to be able to admit when you've made a mistake as well, right? So if you're a leader and you can't admit that you've made a mistake, you can't admit that, you know, you've learned something from this or you didn't do it the right way, right? That is going to carry out. So if you're at least able to, to admit where you didn't make the right choices, what are you learning from it? What's your process? How are you iterating as a leader? Um, that carries down, right? Because you might lead a certain way, you find out it doesn't work, you try to do it another way. And your team is going to pick up on that and they're going to try to do the same thing. And whether that's in the technical aspect, the professional aspect, or, you know, the interpersonal aspect, those are all the ways I think you would encourage that culture. And to add to that, um, you know, like what Greg was saying about failing fast, um, you've got to be able to have a place to fail safe as well. Um, not just from the interpersonal, you know, my, my manager's not going to beat me up because my experiment didn't give me, you know, first pass yield, mm -hmm. that it didn't give me all the results I wanted to. Um, you know, what's great about the place that Greg and Mike have built is that, you know, it's a place where you have all the things to go try. You have all the tools that you need to be safe while you go try. We have hardware that's not going to adversely affect our customer if something goes wrong, right? It's like uh, it's it's a real safe place to, you know, maybe go learn and not get the results that you wanted the first time. But the culture is set up such that you recover from those failures very quickly. And that does a couple of things for your team, right? Not just that you can make your pivot and persevere decisions, you know, quickly you know, oftentimes in the same day. Um, but it leads to a failure immunity and an ability to, to persevere in the face of adversity when you're finding things aren't going your way because you haven't had that linear process. It's been a little messy. Um, you, you, you get that ability to recover and that can carry a team further than, than anything. That's, that's the grit element that everybody talks about. And, you know, having that in a team means you're going to win a lot more often. Yeah, of course. So you guys have talked about a lot of really good examples and what you've gotten out of it. For anybody else who might be thinking about implementing design thinking or experimenting with that, what advice would you give them? I would say um, if you want to try out the process, the most important thing to keep in mind is to keep the end in sight your end goal in sight and to not try to apply it too rigidly. Use the process where it's appropriate, where it feels right, where it feels beneficial. Um, and I would say, you know, don't, don't force it. Don't push it on too many people at once. A lot of times as an individual, you can just start to apply it to your problems uh, as you see fit. And a lot of people will start to follow. Um, you know, of course, it's, it's very interesting to see if you walk by someone's desk, for example, and they have popsicle sticks and pipe cleaners and, mm -hmm. um, you know, paper clips, uh, and they're doing fun, little, quick prototyping projects with them. That's going to get other people engaged. They're going to want to know what you're doing. They're going to find out then how it's helping you and, and how it's helping to push your projects along. Um, so just, you know, don't, don't feel like you need to look up all the steps and follow them uh, word for word. You know, as long as you are uh, following the 
the greater feeling of the program, I, I think it's going to lead to success. Yeah, that's a good one. You know, the other thing I would add to that, it goes along with what Mike's saying, is the process is really secondary. you got to keep your eyes on the prize, right? So what what is it that our user needs to achieve? What is his need or her need that we can then go create this solution for? Um, there was a great TED Talk that Simon Sinek did on the golden circle, right, of the what, the how, and the why. And the whole empathize and define step is all around defining that why. Right? What are the needs from the field that we can go solve? What are the pain points that our customers have? And when we define our problems that way, it unleashes a lot more creativity that I think is already inherent in all the people that I've met at GE. Then we can use our design process with our iterative and prototyping steps to get through. That's our how. And then the what is the solution that we deliver. But if you don't focus on what that need from the field is, that that's where you have to start. Yeah, and the other the other piece as well, right? I mean, we talk a lot about how the, the process is messy, right? Um, it's iterative. You're going around. You might follow some. You might not follow others. You know, keeping your your eye on that end goal. I think with a lot of other processes that GE puts in place, right, it's, it's very clear to measure that you're on track, right? It's, hey, I went to PRR, I went to CDR, I went to PDR, DDR, right? It's, it's a lot easier to measure that way of saying where you are in the process. With design thinking, sometimes it's a lot harder. Um, it's not as easy to say where you are on that map. And as a leader, I think you really got to be able to to trust and empower your people from that aspect. Um, it's really easy to measure at the end. You know if you're successful, right? Um, whereas a lot of times with some of those other processes, you might say you're being successful and on track along the way. But then, again, like we talked about the outcome, no one might want it. No one might be pulling for it. Whereas in this aspect, it's a little bit harder during the process, but the outcome is black and white. It's very clear to know um, if people want it and if you're getting that pool. The other thing I'd add to that is, as a consulting engineer, I spend a lot of time in design reviews. And when I have a design review with people who have followed a process like this, you can just feel the depth of knowledge and understanding that they have around the problems and how their solution is going to impact it, as opposed to somebody who maybe went through a more checklist-style process and their, you know, their their knowledge and understanding might not be quite as deep. For sure, yeah. Well, we're at the end of our time, but thank you guys so much for sharing a lot of these really great practical examples of how design thinking has been used, um, and really how flexible and um, you know how how it can really be applied to a wide range of things. So. Appreciate walking us through that, and I hope we can continue looking for ways to implement this and, and make it useful for a lot of different applications. After you've gone through it the first time, don't forget to iterate, because you're <laughs> going to get better every time you do it. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much. Is there any, any other closing thoughts before we end? I got nothing. Thanks for having us. No. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you, Shanta. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes, follow us on SoundCloud, and of course, like, comment, rate, and share. Thanks for listening.